Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. Today, my guest brings back lots of memories. Not so much memories about her, because I don't know her that well, but memories about my own family, about our ABC Birding Club in town, and really fond memories. Tasha is the daughter of Shelley Parker. Shelley is a member of our ABC Birding Club and took Ken Brown's birding class many times along with me. So I went on many long birding trips with Shelley. And Shelley is an adventurer. She is not one who stays one step behind the leader. She wanders off. She finds birds on her own. She's very much an adventurer. She also does lots of pretty rigorous backpacking, kayaking, all sorts of uh, high-intensity, high-energy sorts of activities on her own and with her family. And uh, it turns out that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree with Tasha. Also makes me think of my own family. Kay and I grew up, and we had values in our family. We valued the environment. We valued adventure, making experiences. And turns out the apple didn't fall far from the tree in our regard either. Our daughter, after a foray into corporate America, uh, basically walked away from that, is now living in Costa Rica, making the world a better place. She's involved with Jungle Projects, a company that is trying to help local indigenous peoples uh, grow breadfruit on their properties and making a market for that breadfruit as a caloric source for the world. It's a gluten-free grain flour sort of product that can be used in many different things. She's in New York right now on a fundraising uh, adventure for that, and I couldn't be prouder of her. But you know, although not exactly how KRI envisioned uh, passing on our family values, the family values go on in ways you can never expect. Well, that happened with Tasha, too, and her family. Tasha is a biologist, and after training, she has been on some fabulously spectacular adventures. She works with Stellar Ziders in Alaska and has in the past and continues to work with waterfowl, which are her passion, but started not with bird watching with her mom so much, but started by raising fowl chickens, grouse, quail, whatever, uh, in her own backyard that her mom helped her get started in. And she became passionate about that and has had a breeding captive population of Stellar's Eiders, uh, trying to make sure that that population in Alaska has a backup resource because they're very endangered. Uh, so it's just kind of crazy how the consequences of our behaviors as parents may lead to great dividends down the road in ways we'd never imagine. So I'm really excited to have as my guest today, Tasha DiMarzio. Welcome, Tasha, to the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 36. Hey, Tasha, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks uh, for being thank on Thank you very much for today. having me. Oh, you're welcome. Tasha, I met you a few times when you've been visiting your mom here in Washington. Nice to talk to you again. I was hoping to talk to you a lot about your eider research, but first I want to kind of hear your birding story. How'd you get started in birding? Did your mom introduce well, you? Well, it was, it was kind of a little bit mom? of both. I've um, been involved just in the love of nature as long as I can remember, and birds have always been a part of my life. Um, you know, I try and think back, like, when did it really happen for me? And um I remember when I was 10 years old, uh, she got me some, my mom got me some chickens and uh, that just like really, I just loved them instantly. And then it kind of grew to this um, obsession of having all these aviaries full of exotic birds. So anything from waterfowl to doves and quails and pheasants. And I got involved in 4-H and FFA. And then as time went on, 
I was so honed in on those. And as I was growing up, you know, my mother would point out birds in the backyard. And, and so I kind of grew up knowing the names of birds already, instead of just, Hey, that's a bird or that's a tree. I would know the proper names. And I remember camping right. with my grandma and always making sure that we packed peanuts for the great jays. And so always been a part of that, but it wasn't really until college that I had a really great professor that just realized that, um, bird birding was natural for me. And I had never heard really about listing or anything like that. And, uh, so he got me involved in um, a lot of projects through college. And so it wasn't until a little bit later um, when I actually started working for Fish and Wildlife Service on a bluebird project um, that I kind of really started um, actually birding for a hobby too and keeping track of what I was seeing. Cool. So where did you go to college? Where did you um, study? I went to a college in North Dakota, Minot State University, and I studied um, fish and wildlife management. Okay. Uh, obviously a good, uh, lead into your career. Uh, and, uh, and did you, was your first major job in Alaska or did um, you do yeah, other work so my before first, Um, I guess adult job <laughs> was in Alaska, but I did summer jobs, um, in North Dakota working for fish and wildlife service as a technician, um, mostly looking at a uh, waterfowl cause that was that what was there, the prairie pothole region, um, doing waterfowl surveys and breeding success. And then also looking at some um, tall grass prairie species of songbirds and some shorebirds. But it was mostly focused on waterfowl because that is the, the major species that are there. Okay. Very cool. So you did waterfowl work there. And then you went to Alaska. What uh, was your first job in Alaska? In Sitka, Alaska. And I worked at a raptor center there. So it was a, a rehabilitation facility for any types of raptors that came in, we also got, you know, other species of birds, but it was mo mostly focused on raptors and then public outreach. And so I took care of the, the birds that were at the center that were coming in sick and injured. But then I also did presentations with the eagles, um, talking to people about raptor conservation and, and eagles and ecosystems in Alaska. Um, and so I did that for about a year. Okay. Okay. And so then I, uh, so. I moved to uh, Seward, Alaska, which is uh, north on the Kenai Peninsula, and got an internship at right. a facility called the Alaska Sea Life Center. And it's a public research aquarium, so it's open to the public. They can come in, and, and every animal that's in this facility is native to Alaska, so that's what makes it really unique. And um, so this okay. facility does research um, based on mostly species that are in decline or things that are in great need of knowing answers for. And so there was a captive bird population and I started interning there. And then um, over my span of 15 years working there, I became curator and managed a population of alcids. Um, so uh, puffins and myrrhs and terns and oyster catchers and guillemots. And then also um, part of my job, a huge part of my job was managing a captive breeding population of stellars and spectacled eiders that were there for research for a um, ongoing conservation program and reintroduction program. Wow. Okay. So I remember when you talked to our club, you talked about the challenges of of uh, captive breeding eiders. Was it was not? I mean, I think in in parts of the world they have captive breeding common eiders for down, but uh, but captive breeding stellar's eiders is not a, a commonplace thing. And you, there was some real challenges. <laughs> Remind me of what those yeah, were. Yeah. So uh, you know, there's the, the, there's four species of eiders, and um, two of them are threatened. And so 
but they're they're in different family groups. One's Somateria and um one's polysticta and they and they definitely have um different behavioral attributes, natural um natural history. And so the Somateria seem to be a more docile species and they're bigger bodied, whereas the Fellersiders are a little bit more high strung. They're like if you crossed a pintail and a harlequin duck. Um they they live in this intertidal zone. Um they're very dynamic and um, they don't crash. And, and so they're very, they're very different. And so bringing a species like that into captivity, you really have to think a lot about their natural history. And so we actually brought them in um, from the wild, but we brought them in as salvaged eggs. So we paired with Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, and what we did is we went out on the tundra and anytime there was a nest that was predated by a raven and a Jaeger, a fox, anything like that, um, where we knew that the hen was going to abandon, we took those eggs and we brought them back and hatched them out of the facility. And so it took us something like 10 years to really get them um, calm enough and comfortable enough to breed in captivity. But that also took not only getting them used to life in captivity, even though they were hatched there and raised there, raised there their whole life, um, just figuring out what their needs were. Um, you know, we had to bring in moss and bushes and and change the water from salt to fresh throughout the seasons. And um, we did a lot of behavioral observations to see um, who actually wanted to be paired with who. We couldn't just, you know, make these arranged marriages. Uh, it just didn't work. And so there was a lot of things like that over the years. It's like tiny little steps meant great strides. You know, it, it took, I think, five years for us to even see them populate. And so, um, so that, you know, there was a lot of key Key moments that felt like huge successes um, during that period of time. And uh, yeah, so originally the, the eggs were brought in um, because the population was declining and we, um, how they winter and spend their lives, we, we really realized that we needed a way to have a backup population in captivity in case something larger happened to their population where we needed to augment and re release birds back, have this breeding population um, that was stable in captivity in case, you know, there was a large oil spill or something happened on their molting grounds, which um, could be very detrimental to a large population. Yeah. Was it a straightforward process to incubate the eggs or were there challenges? Um, well, there's, <laughs> there's definitely always challenges with incubators. Um, and that's kind of one of my passions, you know, just growing up, um, raising poultry and pheasants is I really got uh, involved in incubation. And, um, but yeah, mother nature always does it better. Um, even if you have the fanciest incubator, because you have to learn, okay, what is the humidity that this bird incubates at? Um, what temperature does she take incubation breaks? Like stellar ziders take incubation breaks, but common eiders don't. And so you have to play with all the settings on your incubator and really find out. But because these, um, eggs were in late term development, um, that wasn't, um, too hard to get them to hatch it. It's those incubation problems came later on um, once they actually started laying eggs in captivity. Um, so once we reared them up, they don't become sexually mature until they're three years old. Um, but then they have to get, you have to provide them essentially with this natural habitat in captivity, which would most mimic their own. And, and that's very hard to do when you're in a scientific environment and you're trying to collect baseline data and you don't want to have all these variables all over the place. Um, sure. And so we would go out and collect moss and bring it in to look like the tundra. We would switch over the ponds from salt water in the wintertime to fresh water. We'd bring in ferns. Um, we would try and play with different types of um, visual barriers like driftwood or blinds, um, putting covers over there. 
area and where I was actually at in Seward, it was essentially it's a rainforest. And so there was a lot of rain, but where they nest in the wild is essentially an Arctic desert. And so we had to deal with trying to keep their nest bowl dry because of all this rain we got. And so that was always a problem is, you know, they didn't want to sit in wet moss. They wanted dry moss, but yet they didn't want to cover over their head. And so, um, yeah, it was a lot of trial and errors over the years. And it took us, um, I think, 12 years until we actually got a female to incubate for the first time. And, and once we got over that milestone, um, it, then it really um, kind of geared the program in the right direction because we're like, okay, now they're breeding. The eggs are fertile and start this reintroduction program. And, and so that's kind of where it took off is that most of my career was just getting this flock uh, of captive birds to breed and be happy in captivity and keep them healthy. Um, and then also pay attention to their genetics um, because we didn't want any type of bottlenecking or genes. Right. Um, you know, we didn't want brothers and sisters mating and things like that. And so sure. a lot of time in the winter, I just spent watching behavioral observation of who was courting who. Um, to see if um, they would make a genetic good genetic pair, but then also actually the female, um, you know, respond to the male's courtship. A lot of times males are courting, but uh, the females have zero interest. And so, um, you know, we keep them in a flock in the winter and then we separate them in the summer. And, and uh, I definitely made the mistake a few times of creating arranged marriages and that, that never worked out. <laughs> they did not want a yenta. No, definitely not. They wanted to do it all on their own. And so uh, so that was, you know, very interesting, too. With a lot of birds, you can just put a male and female together in a breeding, you know, area, and they work just fine, but uh, not with Stellar Ziders. They're very selective. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you finally got a, a breeding population. How many uh, Stellar Ziders did you have in, in the collection But when, when you left? Oh, boy, I think there was 56 in the population, okay. and the last um, thing before I left that we did is, you know, we had this field project going simultaneously where we were taking right. eggs out to the field, um, but then we also decided that, you know, Stellars, with their natural history, um, they're, they're breeding mostly in the, the high Arctic, so in um, Alaska, but then also into Russia. And then they have this really unique behavior where they all kind of funnel down um, into the Eisenbeck National Wildlife Refuge where they molt. And so that's where the period that they go flightless. And so we were concerned that if anything happened to them, their entire population was all in that area. You know, if some sort of um, virus oh, yeah. broke out or if there, something happened to the eelgrass beds, there was an oil spill, we could potentially lose that population. And the only backup population was at the Alaska Sea Life Center. So we actually subdivided that population and um, brought some of the birds down to Washington State to a private facility called Dry Creek Waterfowl. And uh, they now have a population of eiders there. So it's kind of like a backup holding in case something happens to the captive okay. birds in Alaska. Um, and, so, and now we're trying to get them also into a few zoos just so people can see them up close and, you know, make that connection. Because if you don't make that connection and people see things at a young age, it's hard to conserve what you love, you know, you, you, you yes. really got to figure it out and see it up, up front and be like, wow, these birds, I will never see them in my life because of the obscure places that they live, but I can learn to appreciate them here. I mean, who would have thought uh, raising pheasants as a, as a young girl <laughs> would lead to raising Stellar Ziders as an adult? I mean, Right. I know my mom jokes that she's like, I really had no idea what was happening when I got you those chickens. And now, uh, you know, you just breed birds for a life. <laughs> 
Yeah. yeah. Unintended consequences. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Cool. So you, uh, so you did that for quite a while and, uh, and then you took last summer, you, you told me that you were, uh, in Maine. Right. Yeah. So, um, after, uh, so at the Sea Life Center, I went to the field a few times and ran a reintroduction camp out there. I tromped around on the tundra and just, I just loved it so much. And, and, you know, as I did captive breeding, uh, for 15 years and I really enjoyed, you know, the hands-on experience every day working with these birds. Uh, there was just a bigger pull to conservation for me of wanting to see the birds in the wild and interact with them and bring what I learned from seeing them in the wild into captive populations and kind of bridge that gap. And so um, I actually took a break from waterfowl and I went to Maine and I worked for um, Audubon, a part of Project Puffin, and I led a field crew out on Eastern Egg Rock. And so I worked with um, Atlantic Puffins and Black Guillemots and species of terns, including roseate terns. And then we also had a great um, a great little area that um, common eiders bred. And so I was like, yes, I get my waterfowl too. And so it was kind of this all-encompassing um, eight-acre island of everything I loved. I had a great field crew. Um, I was out there living amongst, you know, these laughing gulls that were relentless <laughs> and keeping you up all night. Um and, and watching, you know, puffins and banding them to looking at roseate, roseate terns and digging their little underground burrows. And, and so it was so neat to just be um, in that. And then also, you know, we had the, the teens from Hog Island coming over and shadowing us for the days and um, different artists coming out. And so it was so neat to not only be doing science and living out there in it, but then also uh, talking to visitors and really um, making connections with people and kind of seeing Bird spark, you know, in these people. And, and so it was just such a phenomenal experience. I felt like I was at adult summer camp the whole year and I was like, I couldn't believe it. Hard to beat that. I am, I'm reading Christian Hagenlocker's new book, uh, Falcon Freeway. Oh, yeah. He talks for a while about uh, spending a week at Hog Island, uh, working with the youth there and uh, how the youth got to visit Eastern Egg Island. I also am from Maine. So I've. Uh, yeah. I haven't. Visited, oh, wonderful! <laughs> I haven't visited, meaning stepped onto Eastern Egg Island, but I've certainly uh, ridden on boats right by it a few times. Yes, seen, that's how that's how most people see it. <laughs> yes, uh, so pretty cool. I think. I think. Oh, I saw my life, a northern gannet. Uh, oh, on my, my first trip to that island, I was riding on the boat out, and uh, I saw this weird bird on the water. It had this long tail, and it was white and black, and it was like what. It, as it took, and I go, oh my goodness, that's a gannet. It was just sitting on the water, like <laughs> yeah. And when once yeah. it was obvi obvious what it was, but right? Not how you not how you expect to see this big bird with a long tail, looking really goofy on the water. It was pretty cool. Definitely, yeah. And, and that was another fun part of being on the island is not only we were you know doing the research of the alcids, but I was like, wow, I'm on this island in spring, and I've got all these migrants coming by. And then I looked at the eBird list, and I was like we could really bump this up. And, and so we uh, started, I got my crew birding and then we had an actual bird feeder thriftwood bird feeding station. And, and uh, it was great. We really had a lot of fun, you know, seeing some of those warblers that I would have never gotten to see just coming down to rest on our Island. And so that was a really neat aspect of it also. Well, I will check, but I bet in one year, you are one of the top e-birders on Eastern. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> there's, there's a few other birders that now have 
uh, like to compete, you know? Oh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. So, so you spent your summer there. What's happened since then? Uh, so since then, while I was there, I actually got a job um, offer while I was out on um, Egg Island um, to come back to Alaska and work for the Department of Fish and Game in their waterfowl division. And so um, I took that offer because although I love Maine, it wasn't a um, permanent job there. And so I, I came back and um, now I'm working in that division. So it's under um, the Division of Wildlife Conservation, and so my subgroup is waterfowl. And um, essentially what we do is we look at populations of birds to make sure that their population is robust enough that um, we can have hunting seasons. And so that's everything from looking at stoders and harlequin ducks to um, looking at emperor geese, which the, the hunting season was just lifted after a 30 year ban of those guys. And so, where our program is monitors populations of birds, but it also um, does research. And so a lot of my days, um, I've spent, I think, nine months in the field this year, on and off, um, doing different projects, everything from scoters to looking at um, goose populations. And most recently, I was out at Eisenbeck National Wildlife Refuge counting brant. Um, oh, wow. And so we're... I do a lot of counting of birds, and um, yeah. So, uh, so just recently, I was out counting brant, um, working in a joint collaboration um, with Fish and Wildlife Service, USGS, and Alaska uh, Fish and Game, and we were counting brant to look at age ratio. So, essentially, production, um, how the production season went this year, and so we would go out in these zodiacs and the eelgrass beds and count these humongous flocks of birds and. Essentially, you'd look through a flock and you'd say, you know, family group of two, family group of six, um, and you'd do that all day long. And right now, the whole population of Pacific Black Brant are coming through that area, and, and it's one of the largest eelgrass beds in the world. And so you're standing out in this phenomenal landscape while you have like flocks of 50,000 Brant around you, and it's just echoing, and it, it was just absolutely phenomenal. And so now my job really takes me to some crazy remote places in Alaska and I get to work with some really amazing species that a lot of other people um, don't get to see, uh, but also get to get in these areas, you know, uh, like the Bering Mary Bridge, cool. we're doing some emperor goose work out there. And so it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. So, I mean, fun if you're up for that sort of uh, rigorous, <laughs> rigorous For lifestyle. sure. For sure. If you don't mind sleeping in a tent and not getting a shower very often. <laughs> so what is life like when you're, uh, I mean, I've never done research like that or been in such a remote place. What is it like living? You go for periods of time. I mean, it's not just a right. So. I do. Yeah. So um, depending on the project, you know, some of our projects are based in cities uh, or small villages. And so those projects are not as logistically challenging as some of our more remote work. Like we do a project in Cordova every year working with dusky geese. And so that's pretty, that's a pretty easy project where we, you know, stay in a rental and we work out and we boat out each day. But when we go out to these areas that have emperor geese nesting, we're, we fly out to a village and then from there we take a float plane out and then we usually boat out even more. Um, and then we're in tents and weather ports and we're out, um, for upwards of four weeks at a time, um, looking at these birds, tracking them. Um, the most recent project we were working on, we were actually um, on the Yukon Delta National Wildlife Refuge, and we were staying in tents, and there's no fresh water out there, so we have to bring our water, our food, 
um, everything. And then um, we were actually putting transmitters on um, nesting females, uh, emperor geese. And so we also brought a veterinarian along. So it's incredibly logistically challenging. And you also have to get the wildlife refuge on board, the Sounds native crazy. community. Um, so it's a lot of work to actually pull it off. And then weather has to be on your side also. There, there's days where you don't leave your tent. So <laughs> yeah, you're right there living with the birds. So do, do you... Uh... Do you have solar panels for power? I mean, do you have any source? <laughs> I was thinking, well, bring your Kindle. Kindle, <laughs> Kindle will power down. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, so we have solar panels, and then um, depending on where we're going, the pilot will limit our weight. And so sometimes we're in really remote areas, and it's a longer flight, and um, we only have so much weight, and so we can only bring the bare necessities. And usually water is really what holds us back in bringing everything else because water is so heavy. And these areas that we're working, it's, you know, saltwater saline environments. And so when we have to bring our own water, that limits everything else we can bring. And so we sometimes we have the benefit of being able to bring a small generator. Um, and other times it's just solar panels. And sometimes uh, we just back everything up with battery banks and, you know, we're collecting our data on pencil and paper and write in the rain notebooks. Um, and so it depends on the area. Sometimes we've got one field site that we live out of a cabin. And so we can, we have a generator. So we'll charge everything at night and we can actually collect all of our data on a, a you know, a iPad. Um, right. But when we go to other locations, it's, it's right in the rain. And uh, then you're, then I'm entering data all winter when I get back. So <laughs> Sounds like more fun the first way. <laughs> at, least more, at least more fun after. Uh, yeah, you know, sometimes I do this. I'm like, wow, I'm not as young as I used to be. And, and carrying, carrying these heavy dry bags is harder and harder each year. But uh, <laughs> luckily like the tundra is very soft. <laughs> sounds like you're still loving it. Oh, I, I definitely do, yeah. Good for you. What do you see happening with your career? Do you, do you uh, anticipate continuing with a fieldwork intensive career or do you anticipate some sort of uh, change in the relatively near term? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and I thought a lot about that when I left. I'm not trying to be your mother. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, I thought a lot about that, you know, like do I, because I went from so young right out of college to a full-time job, you know, and I was, and that's part of the reason why I did the Eastern Egg Rock is I was like, I didn't get the summer experience where I got to jump around and be a tech and do all this, you know, neat traveling. And so, so right now I'm actually really, really loving um, my job working with waterfowl and because I get to travel. Um, and then I just make sure that I take a lot of vacations and work with other species of birds. So I've worked with red knots and I've worked with little blue penguins in Australia so I, I make sure that I'm getting that too. But uh, as of now, my foreseeable future, I want to work with waterfowl as long as I as long as my body allows me to, <laughs> essentially, um, because it, it's really what makes me happy. And and I'm based out of Anchorage, um, but my home is in Seward still. And so um, I'm working four tens when I'm not in the field. And so I drive I drive back and forth 120 miles um, because it's worth it to me right now. Um, I love my home in Seward, um, but I love my my job and where it takes me. And so, uh, so I do a lot of driving and living out of a dry bag. And, um, right now it's, it's, it's fun still. So. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Do, do you travel for birding other than, uh, for research? Do you get out birding for other things just for fun? Oh, I do. I do. <laughs> yep. So anytime I'm in the field, I'm, you know, keeping eBird lists as much as I can. 
And I'm, um, because I'm getting to places that a lot of other birders don't get to go to. And so, um, you know, just getting some lists out there of what's um, normal and kind of contributing to science that way. And then um, every spring, um, I have a group of birders that I bird with. um, And we do what's called the Arctic Birding Challenge that our local Audubon puts on. And uh, to see how many birds that you can find in a three-month period uh, that breed in the Arctic. And so that's a really fun way to kind of get back and um, keep keep birding year-round. Um, also, I like to go to my local patch here, um, which is our local airport um, that has a great wetlands. And then um, I usually get together with my mother at least once a year, and we do kind of a, we call it mother-daughter birding boot camp. And uh, we do a high-intensity vacation uh, looking for birds together. And it's a great way to hang out with her and, and bond um, because I think it's, it runs my, my husband and my dad down a little bit <laughs> when we just go on vacations and all we do is bird. And so I, I usually do a trip with her or she comes up for one of the shorebird festivals each May. Um, we have the one in Ketchumac Bay and then we, there's also the Cordova Shorebird Festival. And so she'll come up for one of those. And then um, usually I travel somewhere exotic each year um, to do some sort of backpacking camping paired with birding but um, to make it more fun I usually like to look for more exotic species um, in those locations so uh, species that are threatened or endangered are kind of what I'm after and then my bigger goal in life is to see uh, all the waterfowl species in the world and so yeah so that will take me everywhere (laughs) it's just getting the budget to do that (laughs) yeah I uh I uh, was on a pelagic trip with Kirk Zufeld, who's the uh-huh. big, uh, the big guy who wrote the Sherbert, uh, the Seabirds of the World uh, book, right. along with uh, along with Howell, and uh, uh-huh. so he's seen all but three of the uh, tube noses in the world. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> it's it's quite an undertaking, but yeah. uh, you know, I don't know if it'll happen, but it, it's it's yeah. fun to do. You know, just recently I got the torrent duck in Ecuador, and that you don't, have and that was great. List? You don't have a bucket list, you'll never fill the bucket. So Exactly, yep. <laughs> Whether it's unrealistic or not, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You gotta have I, I like goals. I'm very goal oriented and so I and you know, to have those like, hey, we're going on vacation, we're going to you know, New Zealand, what do we gotta see there? And oh, we gotta see the blue duck and we gotta see the Kia and so yeah, it, it's yeah. fun to do that very that cool. way. So. very cool. Well, that is exciting. Uh, so uh, I want to make sure I uh, get uh, contacts for some of the things you've talked about. I'll look up this Alaska birding challenge. That's, that sounds really yeah. cool. How, 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 yeah. many Arctic, how many Arctic breeders do you get in a season when you do that? Um, so some, it, they, it doesn't, they pick what birds they kind of want you to look for. Eligible. Okay. Yes, exactly. And so some of them you'll find and then you'll be all excited and then they're not on the list. And I'm like, wait a second, if this is technically the Arctic. And then some of them, you know, it's just like the dotterel I'm never going to see in Alaska, <laughs> but it's on the list, you know, or uh, the mountain clover is one that just still keeps getting me because it's not in Alaska and, and I've gone down to California and looked for it a few times. Um, I mean, they, they breed in, they breed in Dakotas, don't they? I mean, right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so the list is a little obscure, but really it's not just for Alaskans. And so they have a, it's a two part division where they have Alaska oh, okay. teams and then they have lower 48 teams. And so I actually got my mom to do it one year. Um, and it, it's free and it's really just to create awareness for birds that nest in the Arctic and 
and that okay. are coming, you know, like the like the weedier that's coming Western from Africa. Sandpiper and whatever. Yeah, a Western sandpiper or things like that that you might kind of overlook and um, and just really how important the Arctic is. And so um, I think that's been going on for six years now. Um, Sounds pretty cool. And so, but, pretty cool. so it's that's fun. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a fun Good. thing to do. Do you have any things you wanted to, to mention, things you wanted to shout out for? Jeez. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't, I'm not huge into social media. I do have an a Instagram. It's called Feathered Obsession. And, and I'm kind of more just getting into it now um, because I realize I take a lot of photos, but I don't really do anything with them. And so my thought was when I first created it, I was going to do bird a day and try and do some sort of fun fact about the bird that you might not know that uh -huh. connects my passion of birds and birding um, and and also create awareness for some of these species. But because of my what crazy schedule... It's hard to do when you spend four months. Oh, uh, it, exactly. You know, and, <laughs> exactly. And so I'm my taking photos... Wi-Fi is not too good there. Yeah. No, no. We don't even have cell service, let alone Wi-Fi. You know, I, I have an in-reach. I have an in-reach and people follow my tracks on in-reach. Um, to see where I'm going, but that's more just a, a safety matter. Um, and so, so I, I try and do that when I get back and when I have service, but I'm, I'm often overwhelmed because I'm like, I don't know what would be interesting to people. Like this interests me, but I don't know. And so I'm just you know, kind of just dabbling into that right now. Um, my, my thought on that is who cares? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting to you, put it up. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Cause you know, I started with the Facebook and I had a personal Instagram and, and all my other friends. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> like birding, if I can get anybody, you know. Right, yeah. If I can get anybody, you know, jazz, I especially like to work with younger people and get them excited about birds and just see, you know, just recently somebody told me they're riding their bike and they, they heard a great horned owl calling and they wouldn't normally tell me that. Or I had another friend who is a, a runner and he does all these trail runs and he last night told me, Tasha, I was running and I was up in the tundra and I came across a flock of ptarmigan. And he's like, there was over a hundred of them. And this guy would normally not have ever paid attention to birds. And so I just thought that that was so cool. I'm like, ooh, I'm, you know, like some of my interests are, are spreading to other people. I'm just, you know, creating awareness to the environment that's around you. And you can go for a trail run and not just be so zoned out that you don't realize this amazing environment that you're running through and the species that are around you so i was like that, my job is complete <laughs> you're influencing so, yeah. friends that's cool yeah that's cool yeah so if i can do that it's little strides you know <laughs> very good very good tasha thank you so much for being my guest today i appreciate having you on the show uh definitely you're welcome I, next time you're visiting your mom we'll have to get together and go birding that'd be fun for sure i'd love to that's that's one of my goals is the more i uh, I didn't do it enough when I grew up in Washington and now going back, I'm like, oh, there's all these amazing places to get to. And so I, I like yes. to come back uh, at least once a year and, and try and find some of those species that I totally neglected as a child growing up. So I bet, I bet you're uh, lacking in Eastern Washington is my hunch. Yes, for sure. Especially Northeast Washington. And, and we oh. tried to, I don't have a sage grouse, you know, like, <laughs> oh, wow. and, and we tried for that last November. So uh, yeah. I hear about all your guys' Come back Great field March, trips. March or yeah, April, okay. We can get you on, gotcha. on a lack. Other than on a lack, you just got to be lucky. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I've really been getting into leks up here recently, seeing some sharp-tailed grouse leks, and I'm like, I need to see a sage grouse lek. <laughs> some, of the, some of the shorebirds lek, I think. Yeah. Packed yeah, they do. 
Have yep. you seen those? Um, I did. I got to the one summer that I was up in Barrow um, getting the eggs for the Stellar Ziders. You know, it just so happened, you know, because I had to be staged up there just in case a bird abandoned. And so right. what did I do? I birded, you know, and so I got to see like little sandpipers up there and some of those amazing species that are um, up there and all the different phalaropes and, and birds that were courting. So I was really there at prime time. And so that was a lot of fun. It's just waiting around for a bird to potentially abandon their nest. And so, um, yeah, I really got to witness that. And that's one of the areas that I really like to get back is on the, the North Slope up there and, and see some of those birds at that prime time. So, so you saw breeding phalaropes. I know that the female phalaropes, aren't they polyandrous? What's the term for that? Where one female? Yeah, they're polyamorous. So, polyamorous. yeah, it's it's polyamorous. Yeah. So, I actually get to see that, them every year, which is phenomenal. Um, in there because the areas that we're going out to, that's also key breeding areas for phalaropes. And so it's it's really quite entertaining um, to just sit on the tundra and watch these guys and just you know the females are out there doing their thing and the males will come around and then you'll see her actually, like, they'll just breed right in front of you with multiple mates and then in, in their little nest that you find. And I, it just makes me smirk of seeing the male, flushing the male the off their nest. T- t- <laughs> the nest, do they? The males do tend the nest, yeah. And the That's female goes on and, and she'll breed with another male. Late, yep, and, you know, the nest will have multiple fathers. The, uh, the male, male right. never knows who, who's, whose eggs he's... Uh, exactly, and, hope, and hope she'll have multiple... <laughs> yeah, and she'll have multiple males incubating her eggs too, and so, yeah. so it's so neat. And that's one of the areas that that makes Alaska so unique too is that you've got, you know, you'll go out and I'll be doing nest plot surveys, and I'll be looking at, you know, looking for stellar eiders or spectacle eiders, or and then you know, at the meantime, I'll see greater white-fronted geese. I'll see a jeer falcon come over, um, and then over on the tundra ridge, uh, black belly pulver will be screaming at me from a mile away because um, I'm too close to its nest. Um, yeah. So it's just a really unique environment. It's not just a waterfowl that I work with. It's getting to see all these birds in there. And the breeding season is just so fun because we also have that sunlight too, you know, the 24 hours of yeah. sunlight. And so it refuels everything. I was a gnome on the summer solstice one year. and Oh my goodness. It's, it's just, it's exhausting. You never want to go to bed, but you have to. Right. Yeah. I feel like everybody from outside says that, you know, they're, oh, it's just so exhausting. And I'm like, to me, it's invigorating. It, it re-energizes you. But you do hit a wall, you know. You can only go full bore for so long. And then and then those are the days I'm like, okay, I'll take a weather day. I'll take some rain just to force me to stop. <laughs> yeah. Um, but fun. it's, you know, everything's in full breeding mode. And so you, you're geared up to go to and doing research or birding or you know, biking. And my husband and I did a biking trip to Nome. He's he's really into, he's into mountain biking, and right. and so so Fourth of July we went out to Nome, and it was you know we had such a warm summer this year, and so we birded and biked, and that was so fun just to be out there on the road system and having the locals look at us like we were crazy because here we are, you know, on these back roads, but had our binoculars around our neck, and then we camp out there and. They would pull over and ask us what we were doing. And I was like, you guys don't understand how great of an area this is for bike touring and birding at the same time, you know, and not yeah. feeling rushed and just kind of going at our own schedule. And if we want to wake up at midnight, because the red throat loon's keeping us up, and then we're going to go check it out, you know. <laughs> so, sounds like fun. I envy your energy and your enthusiasm. That's, it's fabulous. 
<laughs> Thanks. Good. Well, I will try one more time to say goodbye. Thank you so much, Tasha, for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. And I can't wait to see you. Take care. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 36 with Tasha DeMarzio. Tasha reminded me after we talked that she forgot to mention, I wouldn't forget this, be a pretty big deal for me, but she forgot to mention that she's also started guiding bird trips out of Seward, Alaska to the Kenai Fjords National Park to look at nesting seabirds and other pelagic species. Also, last summer, she guided for Alaska Seabird Charters and the American Ornithological Society when they had their annual conference at Alaska. She's also talked at shorebird festivals and led other guided trips in Alaska. So you can look up Tasha if you need a guide in Alaska, and she has a spare time to do it for you. She also has another goal for her bucket list that she didn't talk about. She also wants to see all of the birds that she raised in her aviary as a young adult in the wild. So that's going to take some seriously exotic trips to find some of those fowl. Anyway, I had a lot of fun talking to Tasha today. I can't wait to see her when she comes back to Washington. Thanks much to Tasha. Make sure you check out the links below and the blog post on birdbanner.com to find out other information that we talked about today. Until next time, good birding, good day.